Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to read to you verses 1 through 21, and we'll focus in this morning in our time upon verses 13 to 21. Let us set now the context. The Pharisees are clashing with our Lord and Christ is calling us to have no fear and to trust him. And then he gives an instruction on the parable of the rich fool, how not to live in a materialistic age. This is God's word. Verse 1, chapter 12, Luke. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, religious hypocrisy. He goes on, he says, Which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, there's coming a great day of accountability. We'll be judged by our very words. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than that they can do, but I will warn you with whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when They bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Well, teacher, tell tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to draw near to your word, to to lean into your word, to have attentive ears and a teachable heart. Lord, tenderize us, Lord, to these gospel truths. Cause us to see, Lord, if we're drifting into a worldliness, a, a, 
a materialistic, a hedonistic lifestyle and repent even as I'm preaching, Lord, and that you would save those who have not yet known you by grace. Save them, awaken them, raise them from the dead. Lord, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. It says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. Those are the words of David. And he was talking about the beauty of God's law. And of course, initially, and when you look at the Old Testament and you understand the Hebrew Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament are seen as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And yet, all of God's word is seen as his law. And that's what David was referring to in that quote from Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your word. From Genesis to Malachi, in his context, oh, how I love your law. And in saying that, he was also referring to the, the two tables of the law, which all of the Old Testament could be summarized as being simply this. Love to God, the command, and love to your fellow man. In fact, we see Jesus covers that. Let's go to Matthew 22 just for a moment. This will be helpful orientation. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. 30, I'll, I'll go 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Genesis to Malachi. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And, I, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament, the whole scriptural body, all that hangs on love to God, love to our fellow man. Now in that statement of love to God, the first table of the law, that's referring to, of course, the first four commandments of the, old, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before you, you shall not carve a graven image of anything, any likeness of, in heaven above, the earth beneath, or underneath the ocean, the water. You shall not take the name of the Lord our God, his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. And then finally... Do not covet. The capstone of this exhortation of all of God's laws is it ends with don't covet your neighbor's things, his wife, etc. What is covetousness? One man has defined, defined it this way. It's an overwhelming desire for wealth, possessions, or for something that is another person's possession. It's actually fueled, covetousness is fueled by envy. Listen to this quote by the great economist Thomas Sowell, who said this, Envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. That's going on in our country right now. That's what I'll be teaching. That's what I'm teaching in the next adult Sunday school series in my track on social justice. It's all about based on envy, discontentment, and then making people pursue material things as, as if possessions and material things are the chief defining point of success in, in a person's life. This is not a slam on those who are financially well off. 
As long as you don't love money and you understand the position why God's blessed you to help others, to glorify him, there's a clear understanding there, no problem. But when you are driven by the mighty dollar and you're driven to envy things that others have that you want and it, and it becomes such a driving force and a zeal for you to such an extent that you are in danger of committing the great sin of coveting. When the Bible says, thou shall not covet. In fact, I would say coveting, the whole culture of coveting, is, it defines our American world. Our American Christianity is even also pulled into this. It's, I would say it's the biggest blight upon the church, the worldliness, the love of money and things and discontentment and not giving as you should to the Lord. And the result is they're not in the battle. But the battle is to be waged against our own flesh and to seek first his kingdom because otherwise we end up living our lives like we're going to see the rich fool lived his life. You get sucked into it. Look at James for a second. James 4. Watch the warning here. James 4. It reads this way, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels in our world? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your lusts, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Why do wars take place? Coveting. The nation, the, why do nations go at each other's throats? This wicked desire to have what you don't have. And discontentment is breeded. I mean, think, think of, behind it all, even as that, is saying, I deserve this, I should have that. It's all pride driving it. It's what sent Lucifer out of heaven and cast him to the earth with all the fallen angels and demons. It's the same thing. It's, it's a covenant mindset. It's a quarreling. It's an exchange of battle back and forth, a positioning, a discontentment, and a lack of love for resting in God and trusting God. Everyday men are going to hell, driven by the mighty dollar. Should you work hard? Absolutely. Should you invest your money wisely? Absolutely. Is it okay to buy a house? Absolutely. But what drives your happiness? Is it, do possessions have to define you? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Because our society is doing all it can to pull us in. Look, let's look at our first point then. The first point I want us to see is this. Covetousness and the warning against it by our Lord. Look at verses 13 to 15. I read again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me? This is Jesus speaking. The, who, who All judgment has been given in John 5 over to the Son. And Jesus is saying, I'm not called to deal with petty issues between your family and another, and, and your, or your brother within your, your whole issue in, the home, in your home over, over the inheritance. I'm not called to, to deal with that. I'll deal with all that on the day of judgment. There's already been laws that have talked about that, laws of inheritance laid out in Deuteronomy, for example, 21, verse 17. All that's been laid out, Jesus said. Why are you calling me to deal with these petty little issues? The law is already spoken. And the law tells you how to handle your brother and your family's inheritance. Follow the law. That's really what Jesus is saying. Who, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, watch. Take care then and be on your guard against all Covetousness. Now, some translations say against greed. 
Be on guard. Why? It's trying to suck you into its system. To be discontent, envious of other people. Unhappy when they're prospering. And maybe you don't have what they have. A house, a car, a thing, a vacation, or whatever. And it pulls you into that whole discontentment because your mind has not been focusing on Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith. So they call him teacher. Teacher, tell us, teacher. Teacher of the law, teach us. Jesus' point is this. Life does not consist in having possessions. It's very subtle. The latest electronic gadget, you've got to have it. No matter what it costs. You won't be happy till you have it. The latest televisions, the big screen, bigger screens. You've got to have it. You're unhappy unless you have it. And the list goes on. All these material things pulling at you. And yet, are you giving to God? Are you ministering to other people and touching their lives? Or is that something you don't even think about? And that's what happened here. The, the rich fool didn't see the knees before him. I'll explain in just a moment. Again, Jesus says, Who appointed me on earth as the arbitrator? Remember, both brothers here in this case were under the jurisdiction of this law explained of inheritance in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. But one of the brothers, you get the idea, probably the younger brother was worried and said, I, I, I want to make sure I get my, my, my amount. In fact, I want to get what my brother gets. When, when the, the, the oldest brother, if you read that section of Deuteronomy, when the oldest brother is given double honor. The firstborn is given double honor. It was already laid out clearly, but he wanted to be on the same uh, line as his brother and get what his brother possessed. He was driven by possessions and abundant professions. Possessions. Look what it says again. Take care and be on your guard against all covetous, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, what's defining you? Possessions ought not to define you. What kind of clothes you wear, the latest styles, the home you live in, the things you do to your home, the car, the cars, etc. All those things there are possessions. And they should not define the Christian. In fact, the Greek word here is interesting. The Greek word for covetousness, it was also translated, as I said, as greed or greediness. One Greek commentator made this comment. He said, Here's, this word is defined about, it could be defined as greediness. The greedy desire to have more or a strong desire to acquire more material possessions or to possess more things that other people have irrespective of your true needs. That's how the Greek word is defined. Beware then, he says. Beware. And there's a number of passages that go on in the New Testament that we ought to take heed to that are very helpful here. Go with me to, first of all, Matthew 13, 22. Matthew 13, 22. This is the parable of the sower explained. I'll just hop into this parable explanation. Matthew 13, 22. Look what it says. And Jesus is teaching. He says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Now watch. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So dangerous. Money is dangerous. Money doesn't sin, but it's dangerous. It could drive you to a point of spiritual neutrality and, and coldness, and, and it can move you to such a point where you're completely unfruitful. You're, and the word that was preached, even like this sermon right now, as it's going forth, it's choked out because of your greater desires. It can happen so easy. 
pull you away from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Go with me to Proverbs 30, verse 7. Proverbs 30. Verse 7 to 9. Solomon said, Two two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say... Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Go to me with with the first Timothy, first Timothy chapter six. The the replete examples are overwhelming in the New Testament. First Timothy six. Follow me, six to ten. But godliness with contentment, notice, contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire coveting, To be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for what? What's the problem behind it? Here it is. For the love of money. Not money. Money's not the problem. It's just money. It's the love of money. It's idolatry. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Wow. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from their profession of faith. They've denied the faith they love money so much. And pierced themselves with many pangs and ended up in hell where eternal punishment is the lot. Stunning. In Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, another classic text. Look what he says here. This is a great warning from the writer of Hebrews. He's, he's pleading. He's saying to every one of us here, myself obviously included, watch. He's saying, verse 5, Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me verse 7 remember I'll I'll stop right there What, what can man do to me beware then be on guard watch out and isn't it interesting In Luke 12, he's talking to fishermen, poor fishermen. He's talking to Peter and all of them. He's warning them. In other words, poor fishermen who seem to be from humble background, they can struggle with covetousness. In fact, he he tells them it's, it's a serious pull. Watch out, you poor fishermen. Think about us here. The affluence of American culture. I don't know, as your pastor here, I don't know anybody here who's living in utter poverty right now in this room. If you are, pull me aside at the front door. Give me the explanation. I'll be glad to listen and help and do all I can to meet your needs. And I'll confess to you and repent and say, I'm sorry I missed it. You're in deep poverty and you can barely eat. There's no one that way in our room. By biblical definition, we're filthy rich, according to the Bible. Every one of us is a rich man. The question is, are we a rich fool or a rich believer? That's the question. It's a danger. How do we give? How how do we 
meet needs? Do we have a thinking? Do we ever think about other people? Watch. It's going to show what it says in the context here. It's a great, powerful reminder here. Danger. The abundance. So he says here then, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why would he say that? Because that's how the world, that's how the devil and the system, that's how they want to suck you in. Wants you to define yourself by all these various things that, that show that you're successful according to the world's eyes. What a powerful matter. Number two, covetousness, the reasoning behind, behind it. Let me read verses 16 to 19. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, a bumper crop. And he thought to himself, notice he's thinking to himself, instead of praying to God, he's thinking to himself. We know what his thoughts were because he tells us. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, it's the inner conversation, I will say to my soul, powerful soul, you have ample goods. You have goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Everything's good. Everything is taken care of. Well, this man shows his utter foolishness, thinking somehow, first of all, he doesn't, again, like I said before, he doesn't pray. He thinks to himself. It's all about him. He's going to logic this thing out. He's going to think it through. He's going to do it all in his way. He's not going to consult the scriptures. He's not going to pray about it. But he's, he's going to figure it out. You know, He wants to figure out how he can continue to, to see his swelling of his possessions. And he doesn't say anything here about sharing with anybody. Did you notice that? He doesn't say anything. He, just, he says, I will tear down my barns and then give everything away to the poor. No. I will tear down my barns and give some to poor people in need and people and the brethren in the house of God. No, he doesn't do that either. So what's he say? He said, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. I did a study in this second point in verses 17 to 19, and I counted 11 times in which he used the word I and my. It's interesting. Look at what he says right there in verse 17. What shall I do for I have no words for my crops? And then in verse 18, and he said, I will do this and I will tear down my barns and build large ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Very interesting. The man shows his heart. He's not interested in glorifying God with his money. He wants more money. He wants more things, more possessions, more things that he can feel better that he, about himself and about that other people might look to him as that he's successful and all that. And the reality is he's on his way to hell, to eternal punishment. Now, I want you to notice here, here's part of the problem. Verse 17. He says, and, I, and he thought to himself. It's the Greek word of dialogos, which means to di- dialogue. It's the same exact word used in Greek in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and verse 
14. Do all things, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or dialogos, without disputing. In other words, without an inner struggle, discussion. What's he do? He's inner discussing it. He's thinking back and forth about it. He's dialoguing to himself. Instead of thinking about what the Bible says or getting biblical counsel, uh, what he does is he's inner dialoguing. He's doing whatever he can to put off what he should do and is thinking to himself, what shall I do? I shall... I have nowhere for all my crops. I, I, I intend to be much more successful and expand my business. Yeah, again, this man's problem wasn't that he had bumper crops and decided to build more space to store them. That makes logical sense. The problem is that he invested, in, he invested his entire life in his possessions and portfolio. That's his problem. That's what defined his life. Look, 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 look at the presumption he has here. His presumption is shocking. He presumes that he's going to live forever. Live on earth forever. He presumes, he assumes that he, everything's going to be fine. He can just do his thing. He lived as if he'd never die. You know, it's interesting. I was studying the word fool and I came across the word Nabal. Nabal's vineyard in First Samuel. I studied that the other day. And, and he, he was a fool. His wife Abigail saved his life. But at the end, he was finished. But his name, Nabal, means fool. What a fool. What, what a foolish thinking to think somehow, some way, you're going to live always. In fact, one person made this statement. He said, the more acres you have as a farmer, the more cares you have. And he was consumed with, it didn't bother him that he had more acres. He just wanted to be able to keep handling his, his crops and not think about others. And his thinking was not what it ought to have been. Look how it ends. Here he says, I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you, ha- you have these ample goods laid up for many years. Then he quotes a statement. Now remember, this portion of Scripture was written about 500 years after Epicurus. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who lived about 400 B.C. And notice here, in Epicurus' statement, he makes a statement, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A secular Greek philosopher made that statement. And look at this guy, supposedly Mr. Religious guy, he says, relax, eat, drink, be merry. It doesn't mention dying. He doesn't mention dying. Epicurus had more sense than him. So I did a little study. I went to Ecclesiastes, another part in Scripture. In Ecclesiastes, in chapter 8, verse 15, notice this. 8, 15. 14, 15, it says, There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man, verse 15, that he has nothing better under the sun to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go well with him. He doesn't mention dying. He lived 600 years before Epicurus. Solomon wrote that. So then, then we have another study in Isaiah 22, 13. He, he lived, Isaiah, 400 years before Epicurus, and he says, die. He's, he's talking about the judgment upon Israel. And, and Isaiah 22, 13, 
And then we see there, each week, remember, tomorrow we die. So he had more sense there. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians, which was the, makes the most logical sense, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 32. Remember, Corinth was in Greece. They would have been fully aware. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians would have known about Epicurus. 1 Corinthians 15, 32 says, Paul says, What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. In other words, if the resurrection isn't true, then Christianity is a joke. And let's just live like the Epicureans. Let's just party out because it's all a, a frightening joke. We're here by no reason at all. But if there is a God, and he, there is a God, the only God, the God of the God's Word, the Bible, he tells us, if you, if you eat, drink, and be merry, and say, I'm, I don't care if I die, I'm going to party out, and you ad- adhere to this hedonistic lifestyle, you will wake up in eternal punishment. It's a frightening portrayal here of the foolishness of man. And he goes on, he says, for many years all this will go on. Finally, a third point. Notice, covetous, the treasuring upon it. But God, notice here, but God. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, you spent all this time accumulating possessions and buying things and so on, and who are you going to leave it to? Fools? You are a fool, and you're going to leave it to fools. What a joke. He's calling us to wake up in our lives, to to remember that life is short, and to be rich toward God, and I'll define what that means in just a minute. But notice here, I want you to look at a number of verses here that are meaningful. But first the first of all I want to say is Matthew 16, 26. This is helpful. Matthew 16, 26. I'll begin at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now watch. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Came across a great sermon this week on, by John Bunyan. And it's entitled, based on that passage, The Greatness of the Soul. The Greatness. Again, look what it says here. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Okay, so I'm now king of the earth. I own everything. And lose your soul. Your never dying soul. remember, Remember, we are souls. Our bodies will give way to physical earthly death. But we are souls that will never die. Never-ending punishment of souls or eternal life in glory. But it's either glory and see the presence of Jesus Christ and be with him forevermore and the company of righteous men made perfect. Your soul will be there. Your, your resurrected body on the day of resurrection will join your soul. But if you died today, your soul's going before Christ. You'll see him face to face. Soul 
be eternally punished if you die without Christ. You die a materialist. You die a person driven by material possessions. You live a life that's all pulled toward love of money. Listen to this saying. It was on an epitaph on a, on a grave that someone in England had etched. It, it reads this way. Here lies John Racket. In his wooden jacket, he kept neither horses nor mules. He lived like a hog. He died like a dog and left all his money to fools. Left all of his money to fools. So why is he called a fool? Because he believed that a life of abundance was the capstone of human joy. Wow. And also because he believed that he had a long time to to live on earth to enjoy it all. And the Bible says, God said, tonight. Tonight. It could be any one of us tonight. If we're a believer and it's tonight, that's wonderful, we see Jesus. If it's tonight and we're an unbeliever, it's the rich man in Lazarus. We're in flame immediately, eternal punishment that cannot be quenched. One or the other. Not a third one, a limbo where you're floating around and nebulous, who knows what. Or a big blank or blackout, which is, makes our life right now meaningless then. Or there is a God, and he is personal, Knowing him is all that matters in this life and living for his glory, his honor, his name. And then at death, whatever it may, way it may come, to, we see his face and we're with him amongst God's people. What a day that would be. It will be. But old John Racket got caught up in the racket. Go with me. Ecclesiastes 2 for just a moment, verses 18 and 19. It says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is all vanity. In other words, Are you getting your house in order? If you're here today, you should have a will. Get your house in order. Make sure whatever you have that God's blessed you with is left to people who are wise, who are godly, and and give it to them. But get your house in order. To not get your house in order, especially someone much much younger than me, if you don't get your house in order, even a young man just married recently, you're, you're not thinking about the brevity of life. You're not thinking about the reality of life. I remember a man came to me. It was one of the most helpful things. That, now I look back on it in John MacArthur's church. He came to me. and said, Jerry, I saw that you just got married. I go, yeah. That was almost 40 years ago. And he goes, he goes do you have a life insurance policy? I said, Why? He says, well, you, don't you want to leave anything for your wife? I said, well, I'm, I'm unhealthy. Well, I mean, I have to start thinking about that kind of stuff. He said, yeah, you can get a term life insurance policy real cheap for your age. Go ahead and do it. I said, well, I, I don't know. I mean, what do I do? He gave me a card of an insurance guy. I went and got it, and I said, wow. I, and I got a physical. I had to get a physical, and I, I, I thought, well, I... And I was embarrassed because I I didn't tell my new wife I was struggling with depression. I even had suicidal thoughts. But God used that man to get me to get a physical. And when I I found out, I was severely hypoglycemic. And the guy says, well, have you had weird thoughts lately? And I go, yeah, I've thought about hanging myself and other crazy things. And I said, I'm happily married. I, I don't know what's going on. And he said to me, he goes, well, what you need to do is eat three balanced meals, snack in between, start exercising again, and that should go away. And it did! 
But he said to me as a young man, go get yourself a physical. I mean, a, a life insurance policy, and, a, yeah, and I, I had to have a physical. It was two, two blessings. I was responsible and taught a lesson, and then I was also responsible to see that what I was going through wasn't real. It was physical and biological, and I was able to be helped in God's mercy. But notice here, who are you going to leave your earthly belongings to? That's what he wants us to see. Is it a fool? This very night, are you prepared to leave this world? The main point to take is not so much, even though it's helpful to know who you might leave it to for inheritance, the lesson to be learned is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to see God? Or are you unprepared to meet him? Which is frightening. Do you know God? Are we, are we teaching our children about the gift of life and how every day is a, a privilege to, to live for God, to know Him and to live for the glory of God? Have you taught your kids that life is a gift every day or are you living by the, flying by the seat of your pants? Not wanting to talk about it. I'll never forget someone who was a good friend of mine for a number of years right before, um, right after I got saved and for many years before that, we were close friends. And I remember sharing the gospel, and the person stopped me right there. It's the last thing I remember talking to that person. They stopped me and said, stop it. All this talking about Jesus and blood and cross, all this stuff is scaring me. I said, if you reject what I'm talking, hell awaits you. Please, you're my friend. I care about you. I want you to know the truth of the gospel. I don't want to hear about death and dying and, and judgment and hell. Just that's enough. And, and I can never talk to a person again. Notice how it ends here. So he says, Fool, the night, this night your soul was required of you and the things that you have prepared... Whose will they be? Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'll tell you what that means now as we wrap it to the last point. Matthew 6, two points. First of all, verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Then verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He lays it out. And he wants us to look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So he's advocating then to us to be rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? There's a number of passages, and then we'll wrap it with these. First of all, I'll just quote some of them. Psalm 30, verse 5. It means to be favored by God. To be rich toward God is to receive the favor of God in salvation. It's to also have the precious fruit of righteousness. 2 Peter 1, James 2. It's also to be rich in good works, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. Rich in good works. That, that's, that's a beautiful testimony, to be rich in good works. Wow. To feel the favor of God upon your life. To see your faith as a precious gift from God. What a treasure, what a... What, a rich, what riches does that bring to us? It's to realize that godly wisdom 
It is much better than rubies, Proverbs 3 and verse 15. And then also, it's to see that all that the Lord esteems as true life as a gift from us, from God as well to us. But there's two passages that I think bring it to a capstone. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. It says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us, all believers here today, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And he says, for this reason then, live this way, and he lays it out. But the riches is that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have that as a believer. Even if you're a poor fisherman in the Sea of Galilee, you have all that. If you're from Laurel, Mississippi, you're just a middle-class person. You got all riches in Christ. That's what he wants us to see and to focus on and to see what all that's what really matters, being rich toward God and laying up treasures toward Christ's kingdom, not laying up treasures for yourself. And then Ephesians, which I'll be speaking, preaching through Ephesians very soon, or willing. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us, election, predestination, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And the list goes on. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. We have uh, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And the list goes on. So are you rich in God? Are you Resting in the riches that Christ gives us in Him? Or are you def- you're defined, are you defined by your possessions, by your portfolio? Does that say who you are? Can you demonstrate that you are, you've got that portfolio and that, and that whole possession list of abundance in its place and we're th- you're thankful for it, but are you investing in eternity or hoarding? Failing to Invest in what really matters, God's kingdom. In conclusion, a few thoughts here. Are you content in your life right now with what you have or are you always wanting more? Paul said, I learned to be content in Philippians 4. 11. But I want to share this. Remember, in Matthew 6, in verse 24, he said this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve worship. Really what the word means are worship. You cannot worship God and money. You must be delivered from Delivered from the idolatry of, of covetousness. In fact, listen to this passage in Colossians 3. He tells us what to do. 
Colossians 3, 5, put to death, murder. Murder what? what? Who? Therefore, what is earthly in you? What is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath, the anger of God is coming. These things that dominate our culture is bringing the judgment of God upon our culture. A friend of mine uh, spoke down in Biloxi. You guys know him, Blair Bradley. He's preached for me before. But he told me he went before the, the Biloxi City Council. Uh, and, he, and he said to them, they were advocating the whole issue of, um, of uh, Roe v. Wade and the whole abortion situation. But he said he was able to explain as a, as a father and as a, as a grandfather in his thinking that he said it was about also pedophilia in the local library and, and promoting that. He said, as a father, as a grandfather, this is against the, the law. I, I oppose it. And if you advocate this, I'm telling you right now, you're under the judgment of God. And he said they looked at him like, how dare you? And the Bible says right here, such things are under the judgment of God. It's a frightening reminder of the danger of covetousness and the reminder that idolatrous lifestyles must be turned away. And I want to say in, in closing here, First Thessalonians 1 Verses 9 and 10. That's exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. They became as those delivered from idols. Look, it says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, he defines salvation as a turning from idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, Colossians 3. So he reminds us then that God saves people who once were caught up in idolatry of the body, of, of drugs, uh, idolatrous of money possessions and, and so on, and things and coveting and the things people have. All that idolatry that people were delivered, they were... They were turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath, the anger being meted out on culture, delivers us from the wrath to come. I close with this quote by John MacArthur that I think is very helpful here in closing. And taking this whole thought about the fool and the context, the rich fool and what pulled him and how Foolish he was to think that all would go well with him. MacArthur says this, and quote, Only a fool, therefore, says no to trusting Christ and would rather roll the dice against eternity. What a fool. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ? That's the calling right now. That's the lesson to be learned because only a fool will say no to Christ. And Christ has been offered. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is true. That your life and teaching glorifies your Father in heaven. And we thank you for the privilege it's been ours to study these messages on hell. And Lord, we look forward to now the next five messages on heaven. We thank you that to be in your presence, the saints' everlasting rest is what we long for. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace, your patience, your kindness, your love toward us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to hear and learn these truths from your word. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. This whole time together this morning has been a testimony to your grace. And we 
thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.